Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. If you want your players to play fearless, um, you got to coach fearless. Um, and um, you can't worry about the outside noise. You can't worry about all that. If you have a bad day, you know, suck it up, learn from it, put it to bed, move on, and, and dominate the next day. And um, you know, that, that's probably been the biggest lesson for me is whatever your core beliefs are and what you believe in that makes a team successful, Stick to them, share your message with the players, make sure they understand your vision and what you believe in and stick to that process of day in and day out of working on the things that you believe makes a team successful and not being reactionary. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's dr R-O-B-B-E-L-L to this number, 33444. You'll get it downloaded right away. Are you one of nearly 7 in 10 Americans who doesn't feel fully rested when the alarm clock rings? Do you dread your mornings? Let's change that. Psalm Sleep is a drug-free, non-habit-forming sleep drink in a small can that can help save your nights from tossing and turning. Find out for yourself at getsom.com and stop dreading your alarm. Some sleep, it gives you Z's. So our guest is in his seventh season as Clemson Tigers head baseball coach. He's had 207 wins, 113 losses during that span, four NCAA tournament appearances. 2016, Clemson Tigers won the ACC championship. 2018, they were co-ACC champs. And multiple draft picks during his tenure. Prior to Clemson, was the head coach of College of Charleston for seven years, assistant coach for eight years at South Carolina. Overall, our guest today has 483 wins. He's going to eclipse the 500 win mark this season. Our coach, I'm excited about this, is Coach Monty Lee. Coach, thanks for joining us, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Skip, it's it's good to have you on, man. I know I have to start out with this, right? But I mean, you went through a painful experience having to watch The Bachelor <laughs> with with your with your wife, man, and, and coaches' wives, man. They're the most important people. But what what was that experience like for you? Well, I, I think that my biggest takeaway from The Bachelor uh, was just, uh, you know, quite honestly, just uh what a fantasy world right i mean just what a what a fantasy world of watching a show like that where you got this guy standing there and literally like 20 beautiful women uh one by one uh get out of this limousine and come to greet him and they're just like falling you know head over heels over this guy that they don't even know right right and then literally within the first within the first night uh you know he meets one on one with with several of them and and, uh, you know, they all have this one goal in mind, which is to marry this guy that they don't even know. Um, and they're, you know, it, it, it's just quite honestly, I, I just laughed at how uh, just like the lack of reality that um, that this show creates. Uh, so uh, it was just I, I just thought it was funny. I thought it was comical yeah. uh, just to see uh, again, just, uh, you know, uh, these these successful, these successful women just, uh, you know, literally being that committed to this guy that they don't even know. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and same thing on, 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 on his side, uh, just, you know, literally trying to develop relationships with all these different women in such a short amount of time. It's just a, just a fantasy world. So, uh, I just, I just found it comical and I, I could not believe that I was, actually watching this show uh, that was really not going to bring any value to my life. Uh, So so I just, just, I had to put it out there on Twitter just to see if others were going through the same agony that I was uh, of, of having to watch this with their wife. 
So. Well, I was fortunate enough to never have to be exposed to that. But I mean, I, I just thought the impressive part, coaches. I mean, you were there for your wife going through this together, man. Yeah, yeah, and and the funny the funny part of it uh, was when 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 the show was over, I, I think I actually enjoyed watching it. Right, like it, it was it was actually a, a fairly enjoyable experience. Uh, and my wife loves the show. My kids love the show. I have four daughters, so uh, not all four of them watch it, but a, a couple of them do, and they 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 love it. So, uh, uh, but but anyhow, it, it was it was very entertaining. But I, I don't know if I if I got a whole lot out of it outside of the the the, the sheer entertainment. Uh, and no, I did not get up and leave and try to find something else to do. I, I actually did gut it out and was committed for the full hour of sitting on the couch and watching it with my wife. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I uh, I did have to go through the mass Singer with my family. And it was interesting because I just finished reading Barry Zito's book. Yep. And and I called it out when I was like, man, that, that rhino, that's, that's Barry Zito. And I was right. <laughs> And it was last 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 series I ever watched of it, but then I had him on there. And he got a big kick out of that, so I thought uh, I had him on the podcast and said, "Man, I called it out, buddy." It was uh, so here's some of the ongoings behind it. it. Was pretty neat, man. No question. So, coach, let me start with this. I mean, you've spoken a lot about you know being more relationship driven, focused on the process more so than the product. Um, it's not an easy question to start out, but coach, how do you do that? Like as a coach with so many players, so many uh, obligations that you have, how do you focus on the process more so than the product? Well, that's a great question. And 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 I, I think it all starts in, in just 20 plus years of, of being in this business. And um, I was I was blessed beyond measure uh, to start out my career as a coach working under two Hall of Fame head coaches. Uh, Tim Wallace at Spartanburg Methodist Junior College, where I got my start, and then Ray Tanner, uh, who is now the athletic director at University of South Carolina, was blessed to work for him as well. So I got a chance to sit back and learn uh, in in sort of an apprenticeship, um, as as we call it in coaching, as a young assistant coach, where you feel like you know everything, right? We're all super confident and uh, believe we're going to just you know uh, take take the world by storm. Uh, when we become a head coach and uh, but I got a chance to sit back and watch these these two guys and and just watch them go about the process of being a head coach in in super successful programs and the one thing that stood out to me early on is uh, you don't get there alone right and I know you've talked about that in some of your books which stood out to me when I was reading them is these guys, uh, really relied on their assistant coaches and had great people around them to help them through the process of developing successful teams. But they also, they, they talked about the end goal. Like this is our goal as a team is to get to the Junior College World Series, to get to Omaha, to play for a national championship. They talked about that very early on like right at the beginning of the year, and then they let it go. They didn't talk about it anymore. It was like, this is the end goal, but now, today, this is what we're going to do little by little each day. We're just going to stack days on top of days. And and I heard that, I, and, and I can't remember which coach it was, but, you know, basically, you know, Tim's way of saying it was, look, for us to get to Omaha, or I'm sorry, to get to Grand Junction, which is in Colorado. Nice. We've got to climb the mountain. And we got to take one step at a time along the way, uh, day by day, to climb that mountain. And uh, it, it really just kind of uh, early on as a as a young assistant coach, it just showed me the value of, you know, your career as a coach, as an athlete in the business profession, whatever it is, like the success of your career, the success of the season is all based upon stacking days upon days upon days. It's just stacking days on top of days, successful days upon days upon days. It's, and, you know, some folks call that the journey along the way, um, you know, getting a little bit better every day. You know, can you get your, your team, uh, each individual on that team? You know, what can you do today to get a little bit better? And if you can stack days upon days upon days, that's a career. Uh, that's, a, that's a championship. 
you know, for a team, uh, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the end goal is for you, whether it's a season as a team or a career as a coach or career as a player, you're only going to get there by trying to focus on what can I do today? Control What are the controllables that I have in front of me today to help me get a little bit better, help our team get a little bit better. And it's just focusing on today. Um, I think that's, that's the, uh, the biggest thing that I learned from them. And then also you have to have the, the inner strength uh, to let yesterday go. Uh, that's, a, that's a big challenge for coaches. It's always been a challenge for me. You know, if we lose a game, um, it's, it's being able to put that game to bed uh, the next day. And, and, and that next day, there's times where, you know, again, you may not, you not, may not be in the best mood. Uh, you may not feel great. You may still be frustrated by yesterday's failures. Uh, but you have to put the team first and you have to understand that the process, to me, the process is all about maximizing that day and, and trying to keep it that simple because everybody talks about culture. Everybody talks about the process. Um, and, you know, to me, uh, you know, teams that have great cultures, um, th they focus on getting better that day and just really keep it that simple. Mm -hmm. Coach, when you mentioned the mountaintop, because I, I always imagine, I mean, losing hurts worse than what winning feels good. Mm -hmm. um, but when you reach that mountaintop, um, how do you kind of cope with that? You know, I mean, you know, you you, you sweep uh, Louisville in a series, you know, or, or you come back and you have these, these great wins, right? And you're on that mountaintop. Like I've always said, nothing lives up on the mountaintop. You have to come back down. How do you as a coach kind of process that and deal with that and get back to um, you know, being able to, you know, I guess the navigate to being able to celebrate and then back to uh, focusing on getting better. Well, so that is a great question. And, and, and the reason that it's a great question is I think most head coaches will tell you, and I've asked other uh, coaches who have been more successful than me who have won national championships. What was it like when you won the national championship? And uh, it's funny, uh, the guy that recruited me, uh, as a student athlete, Scott Foxhall, who is, and he was the assistant coach at the College of Charleston. He's a College of Charleston alum as well. Uh, actually, uh, Scott's brother, Joey, and I played together for four years. We're best friends in college. Scott's now the pitching coach at Mississippi State. Nice. And they just won the national championship. And it, it's funny, I've heard this before. It's uh, when he won the national championship, he said, you know, when we won it, it was obviously exciting and exhilarating and you felt, you know, so accomplished, but yet, you know, a few, few hours later, it's like, well, what do we do now? Right. You know, what, what do we do now? And, and, and he said it, it, it felt no different, you know, quite honestly than other years, the, the disappointments and, and the exciting end, like the most exciting end of a season can be the, the only team that's left standing. But he said it, it really still goes back to the relationships. And he said that was the most powerful thing that happened to him last year is when they won a national championship is he just appreciated all the relationships along the way and the, in the relationships that he had developed with the players on that team. Uh, so he said, and, and that's the thing about it is when you, when you're on the top of that mountain, uh, wh whatever that mountain is, um, you, you really just understand that it's about the people along the way and the journey along the way and just the appreciation of the people who were able to you were able to do it with. Uh, so and that's, again, just a powerful perspective. And, and you're right. A lot of times, um, you know, the devastation of the end of the season or, uh, you know, losing a series or losing a game and how and how tough that is on your on you individually and on your team, it, it, it probably is um, tougher to lose than the exhilaration of winning. But, um, you know, it, at the end of it, the, the one thing that's consistent is, is uh, as, as a leader, it's about uh, not only trying to get your team better every day, but also enjoying the process along the way and the people who are there with you, uh, because that's what's going to matter uh, over the long haul is, is those relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that answer, Coach. And I mean, there's so many facets that kind of go into it, but I always love the Joe Gibbs quote because he said, you know, it's not so much about having got it as it is the struggle having gone through it, you know, and the adversity coming back down 24-10, coming back to win. 
and the relationships and the bus rides. Mm-hmm. Um, coach, on that part, I, I find the locker room to be a very, very sacred place, you know, especially, you know, baseball dugout, baseball locker room. You know, when COVID happened, right, not able to hang out the team, don't have the team meetings, the locker room changed. What was that experience like then as a coach, how, how that whole process changed? Well, I felt like, honestly, the last two years, um, the 2020 season, which, you know, we were off to a, just an amazing start. And then abruptly, I mean, literally in, in, in the course of about eight hours, the season ended. I mean, it was literally, I'll never forget it. Um, I believe it was March the 18th. It was either March 17th or March 18th. We had just played an extra inning game against Winthrop the night before and won the game. And we weren't, so, and, and honestly, we were outplayed. It was one of those games where Winthrop played a better baseball game than we did. We just happened to win. We got the last at bat and won the game. And I, I'll never forget the next day, I was, I was asked a question after that game, you know, what, what do you think about going to Wake Forest this weekend with the potential of not playing in front of fans? Because this was when COVID was starting to surge. Right. And I said, look, if that's what we got to do, then that's what we got to do. We'll make the adjustment. You know, we make the adjustment all the time. Um, so literally, uh, we went to the weight room the next day at noon. We were going to get on the bus and head to Wake Forest. And we were watching the ACC basketball tournament. Clemson was playing Florida State. And they pulled the kids off the court. Yep. And we got a phone call 30 minutes later. Don't get on the bus to go to Wake Forest. Uh, we're going to have about a two-week shutdown where you guys work in small groups and just keep the guys keep the guys going. But we, we got to take a pause in the season because of the virus. And uh, by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, um, the NCAA released that the College World Series had been canceled. So, I mean, if you can imagine – just the, the challenges, they started there. It was like all of a sudden you got hit by this bus. Um, your season is over and you can't quite even begin to process just in that short amount of, the, of time what that's like. It was, it was like we were, it wasn't, we weren't, in, we weren't living in reality. Uh, and then fast forward, you know, we went through a five month period where we, we couldn't go to work. Couldn't spend time with the, with with the athletes. The athletes went home. They were in isolation pretty much. Everything was shut down. Uh, we came back to school in the fall, uh, and uh, and honestly, we couldn't use the locker room. We couldn't have team meetings, um, and we lost over that course of time. We lost connection. I think that's the the my biggest takeaway from it was we lost connection with others. Uh, we, we got sucked into, you know, we had so much time on our hands with nobody else around us. We got sucked into more time on social media, um, uh, more time of not being uh, physically and mentally productive. And uh, I think it took a toll on our whole society. I mean, and you can see it and you can see the ramifications of it even now. You know, um, you know, people don't want to work. You know, people people want to stay at home. Um, it's just changed. Uh, it's changed our society, and I don't. And it, and it hasn't been necessarily for the better. Uh, I just noticed, you know, just with our athletes, it's taken time just to get back into the mode of personal connection, spending time one on one, talking one on one, being able to connect with your your guys in the locker room. You talk about the locker room. The locker room's a sacred place. It's it's hard. It's hard for the leaders on your team to police the locker room uh, when you can't connect as a unit. Um, you know, leadership can't come out of, of young men and young women in, uh, in, in, in team sports if they're not together. They have to be together right. and those relationships have to be developed and somebody's got to step up and, and say something when it needs to be said. And, um, you know, your greatest teams police themselves. Well, you can't you can't have those leaders in the locker room police the team and run the team if there's no connection. So taking away that took away the leadership element and the connection element uh, of our team and our program. And it's, it's been, it, it takes time to get that back. Such a great point coach, because I don't, I mean, I think, especially the last several years. When I say like back in the day, I think back in the day now was probably 2006, right? Wasn't 95, wasn't anything like that. I mean, it was 2006. And you think about it, I mean, that's when Facebook came out. 
Well, I mean, that's that's even antiquated now. So I think, you know, especially in the last several years, communication, like texting one another, it's not really communication, right? So much gets lost in translation. So I think, especially youth today, and even adults for that matter, the communication breakdown, it just hasn't been where it's needed to be. And then when COVID hit, the communication even got even worse, right? So that makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah, in order to lead, I mean, you've got to be able to have that connection, I think, on the individual level and just to be able to joke with one another and, and uh, you know, have fun and at the same time be able to hold each other accountable. It makes so much sense, Coach. Well, one of the most powerful things that we all have at our disposal on our cell phones is how much um, how much uh, social media use we have. Like if you if you scroll to the left on your phone and scroll up, it'll tell you how many hours a day you're using your phone in terms of social media use, right? And I'm guilty of this as well now. Like this is a challenge for me. And, and you know, since, uh, you know, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, you know, you, you bring up Facebook, uh, you know, I can remember even like in 2012, I didn't have Twitter yet. And my SID said, hey, man, you know, we just beat South Carolina on a Wednesday. You need to get Twitter. You could have a thousand followers like that. Right. And I didn't even really understand what that meant. Um, and I almost think looking back at that and since then, you know, I got Twitter and now I have Instagram and, it, and it's great. Right. You, you have those resources available that can help you as a coach. Right. If I want to look up something in regards to uh, baseball player development, leadership, mm-hmm. just go to Twitter, you know, go to Instagram. You can find a lot of really cool things and use it as a tool. But the problem is, is you get sucked into it. And now instead of spending one hour a day on social media, you're spending four hours on social media. Well, for all that time that you're spending on social media, that's taking away from verbal communication and relationships that are developed in person. And I think that just like you said, uh, you you take COVID and the isolation that COVID has put us in and the restriction of connection and communication um, person to person in a group like you need in a locker room and with a team, relationships that are developed in person, not over social media. Um, You take COVID and you put that into an an era of time where everybody is addicted to social media. And it's like a perfect storm for mental health issues, uh, depression, uh, lack of connection and communication. Um, It's just, it's, I think it's harder than ever to develop leaders within a clubhouse because of all the restrictions between COVID and uh, and social media uh, and cell phone use um, is created a lot of challenges for coaches. Um, and uh, but we have to walk the walk and talk the talk. I think that's a big part of it as a leader. It's like, well, if I want to try to affect some sort of small changes within my team when it comes to connection, communication, and leadership, I have to do the same thing. I got to put my phone down. I have to make sure that I'm in the present moment when I'm communicating with a player and I'm not looking at my phone, scrolling through my phone or answering the phone or you know, taking time to put the phone away and connect with your players. Because if there's one thing that I have found, and this is powerful for anybody, at the end of the fall and at the end of the year, we do player surveys, Yep. right? And I have one-on-one meetings with every player. And the number one thing that kids today want out of their coaches is they want to have a relationship with their coach. If there's one thing that's different about this generation than, than say, our generation, like I didn't necessarily have, I don't, I don't even know if I wanted a relationship with my coach. I just wanted him to appreciate me and respect me, Right. You, you, you wanted, you know, the, the coach was would keep his distance when it came to relationships with the players when I was coming up. He was hardcore, hard-nosed, tough on us. You just, you just wanted him to respect you as a player and appreciate what you did as a player. If you got any sort of acknowledgement of good job, that was like a win that day back when we were playing. Uh, now... I don't think it's changed that much, but they want a one-on-one relationship with you. And that, and that's been a, an adjustment for me over my time as a coach is, is that 
Uh, but kids want a relationship and a connection more than ever uh, with you as a head coach. And um, so we have to think about those things as leaders, being able to meet with our players one-on-one, ask them how they're doing, find out what they're interested in outside of baseball or our given sport and be able to connect with them. And um, we have to change that that narrative of uh, of social media use and, and, and also with what's going on with the world today as far as just um, all those barriers of connection with COVID. Hey there, good looking. If you're digging this podcast, then you're going to love our brand new book, Puke and Rally. It's not about the setback. It's about the comeback. Check it out wherever books are sold. And now back to the show. That's a great point, Coach, in terms of that personal relationship. And, and I'm just kind of reflecting and I, I totally see that as well. I mean, how do you think, how do you think players or the overall, I mean, let's just look at the whole game, right? Cause I mean, I think parents are, uh, you know, their, their over-involvement throughout the years have changed, but we all are kind of in this together. Where, where have you seen the game kind of change then throughout, you know, the last, uh, last decade or so? Well, the game has changed, I, I think, just um, coach to player, um, par- parental involvement. I think one of the things that has changed over the last decade uh, and especially over the last 20 years is there's more resources available now than ever for players, for parents, and for coaches. As the social media boom has taken place, more people are putting out information in regards to the mental game, um, in instruction, uh, the how-to. Um, so I think parents feel more uh, aware of what it takes for their son or for their daughter to be successful. Whereas in the past, before these resources were available, you had to trust the teacher, you had to trust the coach, and you had to trust the parent to do their job. Um, you know, everybody I think has an opinion um, on how to coach my son or how to educate my son or daughter uh, uh, or how to be a better parent, right? Even on the coaching side, it's like, I wish the parents were, you know, would have disciplined him or her more growing up because now I have this athlete coming in who asks more questions and, uh, you know, is not quite as coachable, so to speak, uh, doesn't toe the line quite as much, right? More independent thinking. Uh, I think it comes on both sides. I, I think that with the more information that is out there now on how to parent, how to coach, how to teach, um, you know, the people begin to question authority more in that regard. Uh, so um, I think kids, I still think kids are kids. Um, but I, I, the, the biggest change that I've seen now is instead of telling a player when I first started coaching, this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. And then trusting me that this is the way to go. Um, now, uh, when we're going over a certain topic, I ask them, well, how do you do this? And try to change the narrative a little bit to see how much they know, because again, with all the resources available for them, um, I asked them, what do you know about this topic in our game first? And then it becomes a conversation on me trying to navigate them on how to go about developing as a hitter, as a pitcher, as a base runner, as a defender. Um, so it's more of a conversation now as opposed to me as the coach telling them this is what you do and this is and this is how you do it. I may ask them, how do you do this in the game? What's your approach to this part of the game? And it's more of a conversation, and I try to steer that conversation through my experience. Uh, so I think that's the, uh, the, the biggest thing that we see now in coaching is that, is um, because I didn't know. You know, when I was coming up, there weren't resources available. I had to trust my teachers. I had to trust my coaches. And I certainly trusted my parents and that the information they were giving me that was going to help me as a person, which were my parents, um, as a student, which were my teachers, and then as a baseball player or as an athlete, those were my coaches. I had to trust their knowledge and experience 
and do what they told me to do. Um, and, and now it's a little bit different. I think those people in your lives are more just trying to guide the information that you have available, um, you know, at your disposal because of the internet and because of social media. Uh, so, uh, I think that's been the biggest change just in my mind, uh, over the last decade. Coach, that's a fantastic take, man. Be able to ask them the question, like, where, where do you see this? And, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're either going to try and uh, BS their way out of it, or or because no one's going to say, I, I don't know, coach. I'm you know right, kind of lost on that. But that's uh, boy, that's fantastic. When I think in you know again, I mean nowadays we always have to talk about parents, and I've bo- I boiled it down to this because I think the parents they do they want the best for their kid, but it's like look, the difference between a coach and a parent is the parent is only watching their own kid, only care about their own kid's stats, coach. We're worried about the, you know, we care about the win. We care about all the players and protecting the mission. I just think it boils down to this. I think the biggest thing that changed was when, when I got in trouble, my mom didn't have my back. No, she had the teacher's back right away. Now, now I think, well, we've got the kids back Mm -hmm. when, no, that, that's got to, no, the teacher or the coach still has, and the way, that's why I tell my kids all the time. I said, look, if you're going to get in trouble, it, it might, you know, it's going to happen. You better be 100% in the right. Cause we're going in and we've already got the teacher's back. You right. know what I mean? And that's, that's the biggest thing that I think has changed. Well, I think that you're only gonna, you're only going to have that opinion when you have that experience. Right. And, and one of the things I try to do, I, I heard this years ago, is uh, I don't criticize things I don't understand. Mm-hmm. So I just literally, I have no opinion in a critical way or in a negative way about anything that I don't understand. And, and, and I need to gain understanding of this before I'm critical of it. So that, that's the first thing. Uh, so my kids have heard that forever. And the reason that I believe that is because I taught in the classroom. For four years. So when I first got into coaching, I was a teacher. So I know what it's like to be a teacher. And I know what it's like to be a coach. I mean, you talk about, you know, two professions that you're criticized more than any other. Be a, be a teacher in a school and be a coach. So I know all about taking on criticism. And 90, 90% of the time when I have been criticized by a parent as a teacher or as a coach, uh, or by somebody or something uh, as a coach, anytime there's criticism involved, 90% of the time they criticize things they don't understand. Mm-hmm. So anytime I've had uh, you know to meet with a player, I don't understand why I'm not playing. And I start to explain to them why they're not playing. More times than not, that player will walk out of my office with more uh, of an understanding and appreciation for what I do as a coach and, and, and why they're not playing. They may not agree with it, but they at least appreciate the fact that I've explained to them the why behind why they're not playing. Okay. Um, and I think that's, that's the biggest thing that, that I've, that I've learned is I don't really worry so much about criticism because 90% of the time people criticize things they don't understand. And I'm going to be accountable for my failures and my mistakes I'm never going to blame somebody else. I'm always going to look in the mirror first. What could I could I have done differently in this situation to be more successful? Right. Uh, so uh, that's I think, and I think you're right. I think that's the the biggest thing. Another thing that we do with our guys and and uh, is we just immediately day one in the fall we just established this in our first team meeting is look, if your parents want to communicate with me as a coach about how you're doing as a person, how you're doing academically as a student, um, they can do that at any point in time. Uh, my door is always open. They can call, they can email. Um, but your playing time and your role in the team is between you and I. And, uh, and I never want to hear from your parents about your role on the team or, or your playing time. It is really that simple. Uh, so, um, and what that does is um, that that immediately creates uh, what, in my opinion, is the best attribute you can have as an athlete or as a coach is self-motivation. Um, um, 
if you're the, the the best players are are that I have found are the ones that were almost self-taught. They were self-motivated enough to go to the batting cage, go to the weight room, study on their own, train on their own, work out on their own, and develop their own opinions and their own thoughts about what makes them successful. They didn't have the guidance of a coach or a trainer along the way all the time. There's a lot of great coaches, trainers out there. But I think when you have a, uh, an awareness of what works for you and you're self-motivated enough to go find it yourself and develop your own beliefs, those are the people that, to me, are the most successful. Those are the people who are the least critical. Um, those are the people who complain the least because they develop their own methodology or philosophy or belief on what they do. They're self-motivated. Um, you know, uh, people out there who who wait for all the information to come to them or, um, you know, and are not self-motivated to find the answers themselves. They're the most critical and complain the most. So it all go, goes back, in my opinion, to, to just self-motivation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the things that we push to our guys constantly is you have to be self-motivated enough to find the answer yourself. Don't procrastinate. Don't wait to the last minute. Again, stick to the process of being a great student. Stick to the process of being a great citizen. Stick to the process of being great in the weight room and just being great where your feet are. And that's, we've got two signs in our dugout. Compete every pitch, be great where your feet are. And if you stick to those every single day out here, uh, you're going to stack days on days and and be more successful. Mm-hmm. Coach, you mentioned an attribute there from, you know, an intangible that, that people like to talk about, right? What separates this, this individual from somebody else being the self-motivated that that's self-taught? Cause I totally believe it. I mean, I see Greek gods in the batting cage at 12 years old. That's like, my goodness. I mean, that guy is incredible and he's 12, but when it starts to go bad in the game, they can't figure it out because right. they've been told everything that they've had to do. Right. I guess on that line, coach, what do you, what else do you think are the intangibles that separate, you know, good players from them, those that really achieve their full potential? Uh, so, well, I think it starts at a very early age. And again, I can only speak from my experiences, but I was super blessed to have two parents that, that pushed me like really, really pushed me. Uh, academically and as a young man to do things the right way. Like there was, my household was uh, a lot of discipline in my household. But when it came to sports, um, you know, and my father played catch with me every day, uh, would throw batting practice to me, shoot basketball with me, throw football with me. And I played all three sports growing up. Um, And my mom was a good athlete as well, played softball, volleyball, basketball. But my parents never treated me any differently when I had a good game or a bad game. You know, they, who I was as a young man was much more important than what I did as an athlete. And that was thing that was a pretty apparent to me early on with my peers and other guys that I played with is I would see how their dads would treat them when they had a bad game uh, versus a good game. And the ebb and flow, the peaks and the valleys and the up and downs emotionally of the parents based on how their son performed. My parents weren't like that. My parents didn't, they, they, they never really changed how they treated me based on how I performed as an athlete. It was, it was just, you know, this is what you do. And, uh, you know, you, you play sports because it's good for you as a person. Uh, so, um, I think that what that does is that instills in a young athlete the mindset of, look, you play the game because you love to play the game, not just because you're good at it. And it ha- and, and, and there's two types of athletes. There's the ones that play the sport because they're good at it and the ones that play the sport because they love it. And, and one of those is going to override the other, right? Like all of our guys at Clemson, they played the game. They're good at the game. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's the ones that love to play the game more than they're good at it are the ones that can deal with the failures a lot better. And the guys that play the sport because they're good at it more than they love the game. Those are the ones that always have a hard time dealing with failure. 
Um, you know, the guys that you you know that when you get a rain out, they're glad that you got a rain out, you know, because they, they don't want to play because they know when I go into this game, if I have a good game, I'm going to be, I'm going to feel really good about myself. When I have a bad game, I'm going to be down in the dumps. Those are the guys that always want to rain out. Uh, whereas the guy that's ticked off that there's going to be a rain out because he just loves to play. It's like a Sandlot game to him. Um, they don't care so much about their own individual stats and their own results as long as they get a chance to play and compete and enjoy trying to help their team win. Um, and you instill that mindset in a young athlete subconsciously, I think as a parent and as a coach, when you don't talk about their results when they're kids. Talk about the sheer joy uh, that you get from playing the game and the competition of the game. Hey, let's go win a game to today together and uh, did you do everything you could do to try to help your team win today and did you enjoy competing now those should be the things that parents uh, are talking about with their with their kids and if they do if that's the uh, the mindset and what's being communicated uh, day in and day out that's that's where in my opinion that's that's where it should go uh, the best competitors don't worry about their individual results. They worry about, I got to help my team win today. Um, and I enjoy playing. So I think that's where it, that's where it comes from. Yeah. No, that's fantastic, Coach. Coach, when, when you think, when it comes to the competitiveness, have you experienced that those that are the best doesn't matter what the sport is or the competition? Like if we're playing checkers, I want to I want to beat you in checkers. Have you found that to be a common thread amongst all great competitors? Like, no matter what it is, they want to compete? Well, I think that I, I was, again, pulling from my own experiences. Um, one of the greatest, one of the best competitors I, I ever coached was in my first year coaching. So I, I coached this 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 uh, this kid. His name's Lee Curtis. So Lee Curtis is in, uh, he was uh, the only two-time Southern Conference Player of the Year. He went on to play at the College of Charleston after he played at Spartanburg Methodist Junior College. And Lee was a sophomore in junior college, my first year coaching. So I'm like 24 years old, just finished playing myself. Again, I think I know everything there is to know about hitting instruction. I was the hitting coach. And well, Lee is uh, was an All-American the year before as a freshman. And Lee was struggling, like first 15 games of the season, really wasn't hitting the ball very well. And I felt like there were some, some issues within his swing that if he would make some adjustments would help him hit the way that we all felt like he was going to hit or he should be hitting. And uh, so I told him, look, man, every time you, you know, you have this flaw and you have this flaw and, and you need to fix this. And if you fix these things, it's going to help you become a better hitter. And, um, you know, he, he said something that was very, very important to my development as a coach. He said, look, he said, coach, you don't have to worry about trying to help me with my swing. Um, I know my swing. I know what works for me. I'm just having some tough luck right now. Probably tomorrow when we play, I'll probably get three hits. I'll help us win. You don't have to worry about my swing. You don't have to worry about trying to, to give me uh, any hitting tips. I know what works for me. I'm doing what works for me. Trust me. Um, I'll start producing. And uh, he was that type of competitor and had that type of confidence that even when he was struggling, it wasn't because of his swing. It wasn't because of um, this flaw. It was simply that the game just wasn't working out for him. And he just needed to keep going out there and competing and you know, he went on to have another All-American year and was the best player on our team and went on to be arguably one of the best baseball players to ever play in the Southern Conference and got drafted, played professionally. And it was just a lesson to me that it's not all about that, right? It, you know, at it, it, some at some point in time, when you see a kid that has that competitive makeup, like that ultra competitor that has that confidence and that swagger about them, you know, those are the types of players, quite honestly, put them in the lineup and just let them go. You know, just let them go. They they don't need they don't need all of that coddling uh, sometimes that I think. And there there are players that need to have you got to put your arm around them. They're more fragile. They need your encouragement more. Um, he wasn't one of those guys. He was super self motivated, super confident, and super competitive. 
uh, you know, those are the guys just turn them loose and let them go and, um, and, and let them be, you know, what they are. And, uh, that is what I learned early on about competitors. When you see a good, a, a, a player who's a good player, but is super, super competitive in the right way, uh, right. just let that player go, you know, let them do what they yeah. do and, and don't take that away from them. Don't put handcuffs on them. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that that's my take on the ultra competitor. Yeah. When you were describing Lee Curtis, I thought maybe you were describing like Phil Nevin because it sounded exactly like like yeah. that type of player there. Yeah, a little throwback there, Coach. I know Phil. Yeah, yeah, and he was. I mean, he brought a swagger to the club. You know, just with his presence and a lot of other coaches say, "Man, that guy's like the cockiest guy I've ever seen." I've never seen a player that cocky on the field. I was like, "Well, you know what? You know, you want him on your team." You know, he was he was the guy that when he came up to the plate, I bet you're scared to death when that guy comes to the plate. And when he's sliding into second base after hitting a double, he's fist pumping and trying to fire the team up. And, you know, he he just had a swagger about him and an air about him that I don't know if you can teach. And and I've seen that over the years with other guys that they make your team better. You know, if you don't have one of those guys on your team. Yeah, you're probably not going to get to where you want to go because everybody looks up to that guy and wants to be more like that guy. Uh, So, uh, and that's where recruiting and intangibles and makeup come into play, like trying to find those kind of guys, you know, the toughness over talent guy, you know, those, those Mm -hmm. kind of guys are, are, are what you win a lot of games with. Yeah. Coach, what, what happens when your best player is also your hardest worker? Mm. Well, I've had that. I've been blessed. I've been blessed over the years to have um, to have that happen. Logan Davidson, who is now um, with the Oakland Athletics uh, in the minor leagues, was drafted out of our program 2019, uh, first round pick. Uh, Logan Davidson graduated in three years from Clemson uh, with a 4.0 GPA and was a first round draft pick. Mike um, so, Messina. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. Just, just the makeup. He was the hardest worker. He, he was just, you know, and he's here now. He lives in, uh, lives here in the off season, and uh, you know, he's going to be in the cages every day. Uh, him and his dad. Uh, he's going to take ground balls every day. Going to throw every day, and it's like, you know, there's times where you're like, Logan, man, take a break. You know, take a breather. Like you need to, you need to, you need to rest and recover from playing a full season. He's just not like that. You know, Logan was a kid that he was super tall. So he's a shortstop, about six, three. Um, and, um, he would take, he took so many ground balls and worked so hard that he, he had, he had, um, issues with his feet. Uh, and he, he had orthotics put in his spikes when he played his last year so that he could continue to take ground balls every day at game speed. He was a guy that when his in early work, he would take ground balls on his knees because his feet would hurt so bad because he worked so hard and he played so hard. And we would tell him, hey, man, just sit in the dugout today. We know who you are. You're the best shortstop in the country. You don't need to take 100 ground balls today. And he's like, but I love to practice. Like he loved to practice. He loved to work. Uh, so, you know, when you see a guy like that, who's your best player, but also your hardest worker, Seth Beer was another one. Seth Beer, first round pick, played in the big leagues this year with the Diamondbacks. We had to put a self-feeder on a pitching machine so that Seth could hit at night by himself after weights. Like we would practice, mm-hmm. go to the weight room. Seth would go back to the cage, cut the lights on in the cage, and we had to put a a self-feeder and hook it up to the machine so that he could hit off the machine by himself at night. I mean, that was the kind of dedication, you know, when nobody's watching, this guy's working. Uh, And that self-feeder's in our cage to this day. And I tell that story. We bought that self-feeder to put it on that machine so that Seth Beer could hit off the machine by himself at night after weights. You know, and those are the guys that you just, you're going to have that immense level of respect for them uh, for the rest of your life because not only were they your best player, they were also your hardest worker, self-motivated. Yeah. Those guys were super, super self-motivated. You wanted to like pull the reins in on them and, uh, you know, because they worked so hard, but they they loved working hard. Uh, so. Yeah. 
Yeah, I always say it's easier to slow down a racehorse than than it is trying to speed up a turtle. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Quick question, Coach. What do you what do you think of this statement, Skip? Because I've I've always, I've tried to analyze in the past couple of years, but when players get to college, and I know I'm generalizing here, but players get worse or they get better, but they rarely stay the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's 100% correct. Um, and I, I, I think what I have seen over the years, the guys that get better are the guys that have, um, and, I, and we, we talk about this with our, with our team, how amazing it is as an athlete. You got to start with the end. Again, this process, whether it's with a team, this is the end goal. This is what we're going to do every day to get there. It's the same thing with your career. Okay. The best athletes that I have ever coached understood the game and what it took for them to be successful. They were the most selfless when their bodies began to fail. Okay. So when you look at an athlete, Winning matters the most when you're at the end of your career. So when you're a junior and senior in college, a senior in high school, a senior in college, the end of your professional career, it's like you spend all that time early as a pro trying to establish yourself as an individual within the league, right? You try to establish yourself as an individual when you're a freshman in college, You try to establish yourself as a freshman and sophomore in high school. And then the team becomes more important to you once you've established yourself as an individual. So it's amazing how you know more about yourself and you know more about what it takes to win. You become super selfless at the end of your career. You're into your high school career, into your college career, into end of your pro career. And so what we try to get our guys to understand is you're going to get to that point to where the team matters more than you. It may not happen as a freshman because you're trying to establish yourself as an individual, but the, the quicker you can get to the veterans mindset, the better you're going to be as a player. And so that's where I think leadership, you know, comes into play is the older veteran players in your program, they have to embrace the freshman right away. And they can't push those guys, hey, you're a freshman, go clean up the cage. Hey, you're a freshman, clean up the dugout, right? They got to, you got to work together. Hey, this is the standards of our program. And this is what we do. And this is how we do it. I'm going to take you under my wing. You're going to go with me to the cages. You're going to go with me to the weight room. We're going to go out to eat. We're going to spend time together. And you're going to understand as a freshman what it's like to be a veteran. And that connection, in my opinion, I don't know if that answers your question, but but um, whether you're a coach you need to you need to latch on to a veteran coach and learn from a veteran coach. You need to latch on to a veteran player when you're a freshman and you're young in the process. And I think that, but the but the older coach, the older player has to be willing to give to that young player. Um, I think that, in my mind, is where your best players, um, you know, are also your hardest workers, and where your your veterans really, really can take ownership in a program and and that's where your teams are your most successful is when those guys are willing um you know to really try to help the freshmen and the younger guys have that veteran mindset. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic coach. I absolutely love it. Coach on the podcast we talk about hinge moments, right? The one moment person event that makes all the difference in our lives and, and tragedies Ultimately, there are immediate hinges because from that moment on, everything's different. But the the hinge moments, I mean, they connect who we are with who we're going to become. Coach, what's one that you can share with us? Well, um, my uh, my senior year of high school, um, I just finished finished my senior year. I'm going to the College of Charleston on a baseball scholarship, play baseball. Um, you know, up until that point, it was honestly, it was just kind of all about me as an 18 year old kid. I was just, I was always trying to get somewhere else. You know, I wanted to, 
I wanted to be a starter on varsity and then I wanted to be all conference and then I wanted to be all state. So I was always trying to get to the next level of accomplishment. I wanted to get a scholarship. Well, I got all those things. You know, I went from a backup to a starter and from a starter to an all-conference player and then from an all-conference player to an all-state player and then from an all-state player to get a chance to play college baseball. So all these things along the way, they were all about individual accomplishments. Well, then uh, in the summer before I went to college, uh, I found out I was going to be a father. And up until that point, it was all about my athletic career. Academics were not a priority. I did just enough to kind of get by academically. Um, it was all about, you know, baseball, baseball, baseball. It was all about my career. And um, nothing changed the direction of my life more than having a child as a freshman in college. Because it, it, my education at that point, it became, I have to get a degree because I have to take care of somebody else. I've got to take care of a mother and I have to take care of a child. And that's my responsibility now as a man. So what I'm going to do at the College of Charleston academically is more important than what I'm going to do as a player. So I it immediately, it gave me uh, the focus of somebody besides myself. And it, it changed my life. It changed, um, I, I, I didn't go out. You know, I, I took care of myself physically. I trained harder. Um, I studied harder. Um, the team became more important to me because I felt like I only have a, a small window of time now where I can actually do this. And I'm blessed to be able to do this. And my parents were able to help us uh, through that process um, of still going to school and being together. And uh, But I became the, the more mature player on the team. All of a sudden, you know, I'm a leader on the team because I'm just more mature because perspective again is a powerful thing and that hinge moment for me was that it was just um, and I graduated with really good grades um, I wanted to be a coach and an educator I got a degree in education and it just helped me tremendously I, I it, it, it helped me grow up in a hurry and I had to figure things out on my own you know again I had to be self-motivated enough to understand that it's not about me you know, that now it's about it's about my child. It's about my wife. Uh, it's about um, other people besides me. And and, um, you know, I think that was kind of the hinge moment for me is that life changing moment at at 19. Being a father at 19 years old was a life changing moment that that really helped me, uh, you know, set myself up for success, um, you know, down the road. Mm hmm. It's interesting on that same thing, coach, because when you're talking about athletes focused on themselves and the, the older they get, they become more focused on the team and winning. Mm -hmm. And that was fast forward process for you. So I appreciate you sharing that. Mm -hmm. 2021 season coach, it was, a, it was an anomaly for you. It was rough um, outcome wise. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from last season specifically? Well, you know, I don't know if we want to do two sessions of a podcast because it would, it would probably, <laughs> it, we could probably spend an hour on last season, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to sum it up. Um, you know, I, I heard a quote one time, Clint Hurdle uh, came to speak. We have a baseball banquet every year and we have a speaker come speak. And you know, Clint Hurdle said something that was really, really, impre really impressed me and hit home uh, in regards to last season. Is uh, you know there's there's two types of people in the game of baseball, uh, those that are humble and those that are about to be, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's so true. I don't I you know it throughout my whole career as a as a coach, I'd always had a, a lot of success, uh, a lot of success, and and I'd had years that were better than others, and years that didn't end the way that I you know that I wanted them to, and those kind of things, but. I'd never had a year like I had last year. Um, and, and what it kind of affirmed to me was um, when you go through tough times, you have to have a strong foundation. 
Um, and, 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 and I was very, very reactionary last year. Uh, things weren't going well. We got to change it up and was constantly trying to adjust and change. And I never stuck to my core principles as a coach. And I think when I've been successful, look, we all know too. Uh, and we had a lot of injuries. We had a lot of adversity within our own team. We didn't have a consistent weekend rotation the whole year due to injuries. And we had a lot of bad things happen to us from a health standpoint that, but all teams deal with that. Uh, so, but the big thing that it taught me was you got to be consistent and you got to stick to what you believe in. And I felt like I veered away from that a little bit. I was constantly trying to react to the failures that we were that we were having as a team. And I didn't stick to what I believed worked uh, and, 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 and in a lot of ways wasn't myself. Uh, so um, that's the biggest takeaway from it is, look, you got to if you want your players to play fearless, um, you got to coach fearless. Um, and uh, you can't worry about the outside noise. You can't worry about all that. If you have a bad day, you know, suck it up, learn from it, put it to bed, move on, and and dominate the next day. And um, that that's probably been the biggest lesson for me is whatever your core beliefs are and what you believe in that makes a team successful, stick to them, share your message with the players, make sure they understand your vision and what you believe in, and stick to that process of day in and day out of working on the things that you believe makes a team successful and not being reactionary. And that, that was probably my biggest takeaway, uh, you know, from last year. And now last year is over. So, uh, so uh, and I've told everybody going into 22, I'm not talking about last year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because, well, I mean, I know there was a, a lesson in there that the less that the listeners here could absolutely get yeah. out of it. No, a- a- absolutely. Yeah. I use the analogy coach. I kind of say, look, we do an autopsy on the body, right? I'll, I'll ask my athletes, what happens? Why do they do an autopsy? Sometimes I don't know. I mean, well, all right. What's well, to figure out why they died yeah. after the autopsy? What do they do with the body? We bury the body. Wow. What we're not going to be doing is we're not going to the cemetery, keep digging that body back up to figure out why it was di- why it died because we already figured that out. We have to bury the body and just leave it buried. That's, that's, that's a great. I'm going to gonna, I'm gonna use with. I'm going to use that one, Rob. Um, I've never heard that, um, and that is a great way to put it. So I'm yeah. I'm gonna that that's going to be my biggest takeaway from this conversation with you today is the autopsy. I I like that a lot. Yeah, you got it, Coach. Um, coach, last question. What questions should I be asking that I just haven't asked? Who? Um, that's a great question. I, I, I think, um, you know, again, we're, we're all trying to go down this same road together. And, and I think one of the questions that, um, that oftentimes, uh, when I have conversations, whether it's a podcast or a group of coaches, uh, I heard this many, many years ago, and it's so true. Like, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? That's a big one, right? I mean, when we're trying to help players get better, we're trying to help leaders get better, coaches get better. What do you know? What do you know now that you wish you knew then? If you could, if you could start this whole process over, what would, what would, what would you know? myself at 45 years old, what would I tell a 23-year-old version of me? You know, what, what do I wish I could go back and that, that would help me? Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes the most interesting part of that, when you look at it like that, it's like, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? You know, sometimes some of the things that you did then, you need to start doing now. Um, you know, sometimes that fire and that drive and um, you know, that you had when you're, when you were young and you were willing to make mistakes and you were, you know, again, um, you know, just, just challenging yourself and trying new things. And, uh, you know, you had that, you had that, that, that spirit about you, uh, you know, sometimes you have to rekindle that many, many years later, you know, when you're experienced and, and you think you have it all figured out. So, mm-hmm. But, you know, what do you know now that you wish you knew then is a great question. And, and what did you do then that you can do now? Could, uh, you, uh, could you answer that? Yeah, just be more fearless. 
you know, as, as you become, as, as, as you, again, just as we want from the process perspective of stacking days upon days upon days as a coach, when you stack years upon years upon years, you know, sometimes you got to be able to look at yourself and say, I've been doing this for 20 something years now. Um, you know, what am I not doing now that I used to do that, that really worked and that I liked, um, you know, sometimes we get away from that. You know, as you get older, you get more reserved. You know, you become a little bit more, you know, coaches get more laid back. You know, I can't believe he, he does that now. You know, I've heard guys tell me that. Like, man, I saw you coach a game. And, you know, I remember when we played, you know, you'd chew us out if we didn't do that. And, yeah, you know, I'm probably a little more laid back now than I was at 32, 33 years old. And you know, sometimes you got to realize that, you know, what, what got you here is important. And, um, you know, sometimes you got to you got to look back at some of those things and say, you know, I got to get back to doing, you know, some of the things that made me successful. Mm -hmm. And what, what about the biggest thing that you've learned, coach? Well, um, I, you know, I heard this um, I heard this on a, a video one time uh, from another coach. And I, I, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Tony Robichaux. Uh, who, you know, passed away, was a great leader, head coach at Louisiana Lafayette. He said, mm -hmm. you know, passion, passion beats logic every single day. You know, what you think, you know, as a coach, um, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to overcome what you know, um, um, unless you have a tremendous amount of passion. And uh, the people who are the most passionate will, will, will beat uh, the people who, uh, who know everything. Uh, so, uh, you know, and passion over logic is a very powerful principle that um, that I that I feel like, you know, probably more so in my early years, um, I was incredibly energetic and passionate about what I did. And I feel like I'm probably a little more reserved, you know, as I get older. Uh, so that's probably my biggest takeaway is trying to bring passion and fire, you know, to every practice and every game and make sure that I'm mentally and physically exhausted at the end of a, at the end of a, of a practice so that I can uh, make sure that I'm dominating that, the process again, right. Yeah. Of, uh, of getting the most out of every single day. I, I think that's a, that's a great one, coach. I remember coach Cal mentioned this one time. He was like with five, we'll just say the five days a week is that I can, I can be relied on to bring it three out of those days. But the importance of having great people around me is they've got to be able to bring it on the days when, you know, I'm just not able to, to bring that 10. I just thought that was such a epic quote. Well, I think, you know, the best staffs I've ever been around have very strong assistant coaches. You got to have, mm -hmm. you got to have good people around you and you got to have, and you got to be willing to make sure that their voice is heard. Um, so I think that's a great point. It's a, it's a great point. I think sometimes as head coaches, we feel like we have to do everything ourselves. And I'm certainly not the best at delegating, you know, the, some of those things uh, from time to time. Uh, so, uh, you know, rely on your assistants and trust your assistants um, and, and let them let them be the voice of the uh, for the team uh, when you're on one of those days where maybe you don't have that passion and fire that you need or, uh, you know, you're just, you know, you're just uh, – you know, your, your mind somewhere else, or you're not at your best that day. Mm -hmm. Coach Clemson Tigers, you start out against the uh, IU February 18th, wishing you all the best this season, Skip. Thanks so much for joining us, buddy. I appreciate it, Rob. Thanks for all you do, man. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.